The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. We're going to be looking at the apologetic strategy of Augustine. The reason my uh, friend Rick wanted to show that uh, clip of National Treasure was to remind us of the importance uh, not of the Masons, uh, but of our heritage, that actually there are treasures buried in the past, unique pointers, unique uh, guidance that we can draw upon uh, for our current time and our current era. One of the <clears throat> one of the great diseases of our time is chronological snobbery, which uh, seems to insist on believing that everything that is latest and most recent is best. And uh, we know this is just simply not the case. And as I said during our last session, one of the things that we can do to avoid the characteristic blindness of our age is to consult some of these uh, older authors, not just those going back to the 20th century like Chesterton and uh, Lewis, but even further back, perhaps even 1,500 years as far as Augustine. So I want to, uh, for this uh, concluding session, uh, make some initial comments about uh, how we can view the scriptures, how we use the scriptures in constructing our defense of the faith, but then in particular look briefly at two, uh, the two great sort of apologetic classics that uh, come down to us from Augustine, the City of God and the Confessions, and see if there aren't any uh, lessons that we can learn for the contemporary situation. Uh, we sort of bookended the weekend with a bit of Augustine so that, uh, as I said, it's more than coincidental, more than a Paul Ralph marketing ploy that we've called this weekend the Augustine Institute. There is uh, no other reason for using given signs or uh, words than for the uh, ability to transfer thoughts that we have in our minds into the minds of others. And Augustine really understood apologetics to be using God-given signs to communicate God's message. And the purpose of Scripture, the purpose of revelation, God's revelation, is just that, to communicate his work and activity in history through words. And it is words that draw forth and transport what God has in mind as the author of his word, into the mind of the reader, which he is enlightening. And I think there's little point in talking about how we can communicate the story of Scripture and the great epic of the Christian story of reality to others if we don't have a firm grasp on that story and don't begin in confidence about the truth of that story. And that is simply not commonly the case today. That's not to say that when we recognize that God's vehicle for revelation has been words and that those words can be understood, that there's no difficulty in interpreting or understanding any given passage. In fact, Augustine delighted and celebrated obscure and difficult passages of Scripture because he says it forces us to really work hard in the text, to really delve into it. I mean, as we've been uh, learning with LT this weekend, you know, on the surface, the Trinity as a doctrine can seem um, almost utterly impenetrable. And, you know, many a pastor will just simply say, well, the Trinity is three in one and it's a mystery. And actually, there's so much more. 
to understanding, but if it, it's the obscurity in a sense of it that draws us in, and that's the case with certain tough passages of Scripture. It's critical for us to remember that God has chosen human words, human language, as an appropriate vehicle for his special revelation to his creatures. Words signify something beyond other words. Uh, the postmodern trap does not apply to the Christian view of language. Words don't just signify other words. They signify something beyond themselves. And that means that, of course, we can translate the Bible without loss of meaning. We're not caught in a self-referential circle. The Bible is translated into all the, or we're trying to get it translated at least, into all the known languages of the world without loss of meaning. And so the very idea of revelation from God, and this is critical in our postmodern times, requires that words carry meaning that can be discerned by the reader. If that's not the case, then God's word would not be revelation. In fact, if we can't understand words, if we can't understand literature, there is no revelation from God. How could we possibly identify God's revelation if it wasn't relatively clear? If there wasn't, in essence, a, a human ability to understand a piece of literature, to understand words, to understand God's word, how could it be revelation? So the interpretive task is inextricably tied to the idea of revelation. How can we say, for example, or identify what sin is if we can't understand the meaning of the biblical text? How can God hold people accountable for sin if we can't actually get at the meaning of the text? And yet I speak to Christians today who really have bought into this postmodern hermeneutic that essentially says, well, we can't really know the meaning of the text here. It's impenetrable. We can't really get at it. How can we actually sin against God and his revelation if that revelation is so obscure that human beings can't even identify it? How could we be held guilty before God? Now, for Augustine, Christ was the incarnate word. He was the word made flesh. It wasn't just an issue of God leaving us a book. Christ became incarnate as the word made flesh, who established in history that there is a true interpretation of reality. There is a true interpretation of reality. We're not just left in isolated interpretative communities, but Christ has brought to us that authoritative, now inscripturated interpretation of reality. And you'll notice that Jesus repeatedly rebuked the Pharisees for their sin and error in interpreting the Scripture. You'll note that Jesus says in Matthew 22, verses uh, 29 through 31, you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. Have you not read what God said to you? And you'll notice that Jesus repeatedly said to them, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? In his response to the temptation of Satan, he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus repeatedly appealed to the inscripturated word of God, and he rebuked people for their distortion of it. Yet we are living in a context increasingly where we even hear Christians uh, talking about the utter obscurity of the Bible, and we can interpret it this way and that way and the other way, and who knows which interpretation is more valid than the other. In John 10, verse 35, Jesus defends his own divinity on the basis of the clarity of Scripture when he declares that the Scriptures can't be broken and interprets Psalm 82 for them. 
The Apostle Peter as well is very aware that Scripture can sometimes be distorted. And he warns his readers, doesn't he, that there are people, unstable people, he says, who are distorting the words of Paul as they do the other scriptures, he says. So in Paul's letters, he says, ignorant and unstable people distorting the writings of the Apostle Paul as they do the other scriptures. And he says that this deceptive activity is a willful one that Peter says will result in their own destruction. Now, when you think about those kinds of texts of Scripture, if Scripture is somehow impenetrable, we can't really get at the meaning, there are umpteen different right interpretations of any given passage, etc., etc., then we've got real problems. Christ's incarnation as the Word of God, His role as the head of His church, His overruling in history over the affairs of His church, leading His church into all truth by the person of the Holy Spirit, means that God's revelation of himself in history, according to Scripture, is inescapable to human beings. So much so that we are, Paul says in Romans, without apologetic for not recognizing the God of Scripture through his, even his revelation in creation. In other words, we don't have a hermeneutical excuse. There's going to be no hiding away in... Uh, uh, deconstructionist postmodern literary criticism for uh, to excuse us of guilt before God. For Augustine, the Scripture is an important sense, self-attesting, carrying in itself the key to its own interpretation. In fact, no external key is required beyond, he says, the rule of faith and a hermeneutic of love for God and our neighbor. So if we love God and our neighbor, and if we are applying the rule of faith, which itself was derived from the scriptures, which is simply the orthodox confession of the church, of the ecumenical councils, he says if we have got those two things in place, and we're loving God and our neighbor as ourselves, we can arrive at a true understanding of scripture. And he emphasized some very simple criteria. First, he says we should at least make the effort to uh, understand the intention of the writer, Now, of course, this is something that's being perpetually denied today, that we can't possibly get at the intention of the writer. We don't know what the intention of the writer was, etc., etc. But uh, the Christian view of Scripture is that we can get at the, and I'll come on to that in a moment as to why, but we can get at the intention of the writer. Secondly, the context for the passage he says we should examine. And lastly, the rule of faith should be applied. Now, by the rule of faith, he simply means that if the interpretation that we arrive at implicitly or explicitly undermines the orthodox Christian faith delivered by the apostles contained in the creeds, it should be uh, rejected. In fact, Augustine was also humble in his assessment of his own efforts at biblical interpretation. He, he made several attempts at, uh, for example, a commentary on the book of Genesis. In fact, in his confessions, uh, although I believe the edition we have here is an abridged version, um, it's consists of 13 books, and the, the last ones ha- have a, an extended meditation upon uh, creation. He makes uh, another effort at a commentary on uh, creation, and finally, uh, on Genesis, and finally he comes to his, what he called his literal interpretation of the book of Genesis. And uh, he was working on the book of Genesis throughout his life, and this is what he said, I myself may come quite possibly to a different interpretation that corresponds even better with the words of Holy Scripture. And so his criterion for a right interpretation was correspondence with uh, God's Word. 
So it doesn't mean we, we can't be humble in our assessment of our interpretive efforts, but we must recognize that by the Holy Spirit, by the, uh, I don't especially like the term magisterium of the church's interpretation down the centuries, but it is a useful one. The church's efforts in biblical interpretation down the centuries, we can arrive at truth. I mean, if we didn't have, as LT says, when we've been looking at the doctrine of the Trinity, we don't find it explicitly in the Old Testament. But as the church reflected on their encounter with the Logos, the Word made flesh, we came to this doctrine of the Trinity that reveals to us uh, so much. There have been uh, characters in contemporary times who have added members to the Trinity and so forth. We won't go into that. Uh, But uh, nonetheless, those things immediately must be rejected because they do not correspond with the rule of faith. So as Christians, we believe God has spoken. We believe he's communicated clearly in rational human language. And God, being the first language user, thinks that human language is an appropriate vehicle for his revelation. We're capable of understanding it. Now, we don't share. It's often commented that uh, how can we really get at the meaning since we don't share the precise same linguistic and cultural context as the early writers, as the writers of the New Testament, for example. Well, it's true that we don't share precisely the same linguistic and cultural context. And for the postmodern person, that means that therefore we can't get at the text at all. But the truth is, we share a great deal in common simply by virtue of being human beings. Now, of course, this is one of the mythologies, I would argue, of evolutionism, is that human beings have somehow radically changed. They've been in this long transformative process and that we're somehow today essentially different than we were 2,000 years ago, that maybe even our conceptual structures were somehow different. They weren't. Fashions have changed, technologies have changed. There's been periods of of, uh, uh, technological progress, technological decline, periods of uh, literacy, periods of illiteracy, and so forth. But human beings are human beings and we're made in God's image. And in fact, not only as language users do we hold this in common, but we share the same family history. We're all descendants of Noah. Ham, Shem, and Japheth are our parents. No matter where we're from in the world, we share the same family lineage. That gives us something else in common. And in fact, when you look even at the cultural norms of first century Rome, we find that today we share a huge amount in common with uh, the first century Roman Empire. More critically, though, we share in common with the biblical writers the gift and presence of the Holy Spirit. And we're part of the church of the living God. These things are things uh, often that the, particularly the presence of the Holy Spirit and the family unity of the human race are things that secular humanists and uh, deconstructionists today do not appreciate and cannot appreciate, but which we do. And so we can understand and translate an ancient text. The very fact that we can do this shows that we can begin to get at the meaning of words. The fact that you're sat here today, and some of you come from different countries, uh, some of you come from different countries within this country. Some of you, some of us come from, from, we are just joking about Quebec, by the way. Please, I uh, hope nobody's taken any offense to these silly jokes of ours. We, sh- some, we have uh, a whole kind of cultural diversity here, all kinds of different uh, experiences and so forth. 
And yet, presumably, you've understood most of these lectures, or you've been getting there, and you've realized that maybe if you've not understood bits of it, if you can go and clarify in words with the speaker something, that that misunderstanding can be cleared up. You see, the presupposition of all communication is that we can get at the meaning of words and we share the same conceptual structure. So we should have pause before we allow that, uh, unless we're well-read in the intricacies of a postmodern hermeneutic, that today we can see what all our forebears couldn't, that contradictory interpretations are all valid because we haven't got an exterior criterion to judge between the true and false, and orthodoxy is some sort of fluid concept floating around somewhere that we haven't yet arrived at. If that were true, no text could carry a definitive meaning and certainly not a text claiming to be divine revelation. God has revealed himself in the nexus of his incarnation, his word, his act in history. And he's established his church by the presence of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and you, our Lord, interpreting the scriptures, handing them down uh, through the rule of faith. And we have this uh, text of scripture given to us today the authority of the church behind it. And in fact, it should be said that Augustine considered the uh, existence of the church and the authority of the church, bear in mind this is prior to any schism in the church, as a very important factor in him, in him coming to faith. He said, I'm not sure I should have believed the scriptures were it not for the church. The church that verified and backed up their authority. Now, of course, we have to bear in mind that Augustine was much closer than we are to the, uh, to the earliest days of the, uh, the church and the early fathers, the early martyrs, and so forth. So it was perhaps easier for him to make a statement like that. Nonetheless, it was important for him. Orthodoxy is an inescapable concept, and I would argue, friends, that we are not deceived in our conception of Christianity for the last 2,000 years. If that was so, there is no revelation. Let me give you the words of Andrew Sandlin, uh, explaining how we're bi guided by both God and his church in history. He says this, The scriptures come to us in human language, but this language was in fact created by God to suit his revelatory purposes. The scriptures come to us by means of the writing of mere humans, but the mere humans were created by God to serve as vehicles for his revelation. The scriptures are transmitted to us in human history, but God predestines this history, and mainly his church in history, as the matrix within which his word is preserved. The scriptures address all sorts of topics, heavenly, earthly, historical, ethical, scientific, artistic, and on and on. And the God who inspired the word shaped every single aspect of the universe of which his word speaks. Therefore, we can never speak of any aspect of the word of God as though it were contingent on the world any more than we can speak of any aspect of the universe as though it were anything other than contingent upon God. And of course, this is the whole uh, uh, challenge of uh, the Christian, uh, the great difference between the Christian understanding of meaning and truth and the one where the humanist, the secularist, the non-believer is floundering to find meaning. You see, God governs sovereignly all of these things in his creation and so is well able to reveal truth to human beings. So in order for us to begin this rhetorical art of apologetics, we need a firm basis on which to tell the story. And we have that firm basis. We have this great narrative. And that story begins with God's interpretation of reality in his word. 
There is transcendent signification. Words are signs that point beyond themselves to realities that are true uh, and objectively so in terms of the mind of God. Let's come now to um, Augustine's apologetic classics because we've only got 40 minutes or so left. And let's begin with uh, briefly looking at the city of God. And this is one in which uh, uh, Augustine is incredibly dependent upon the great plot line of Scripture. In his very uh, engaging book, and I, I, we don't have any copies of this at the bookstore with us today, but I'd really encourage you to get a copy, if you're interested in this, of Curtis Chang's book, Engaging Unbelief, where he looks at uh, several classics, uh, two of Augustine's and um, two of uh, Thomas Aquinas's, I think, uh, and looks at how they can really help us. And I've very much drawn my thoughts on Augustine's City of God here from Curtis Chang's book, uh, Engaging Unbelief. And he talks about the uh, city of God, as I said the, uh, yesterday, these are classics, these are epics, and often classics are those books that we know we should read but never bother to read. And maybe we've got them on the bookshelf but never get around to actually picking them up because we're watching American Idol. Um, I'd switch that off and, and definitely read the city of God. Um, and he says that epics like these, like uh, the city of God, should be unleashed and retold in our time because they embody the church's mission. And I love this. This is what he says. This mission is suggested in really wonderful epics like the Lord of the Rings trilogy or the Chronicles of Narnia. In those tales, there inevitably comes a moment when our heroes feel overwhelmed and unequipped as they face some daunting challenge. Our heroes can move forward only by encountering some treasure from the past. It might be a cachet of ancient weapons, swords, and amulets that our heroes need to relearn how to wield. Almost always, those old weapons and tactics turn out to be the only way to overcome the current obstacle. Or the treasure may be a tale of ancient battles, a grand story that our heroes retell, and almost always that story emboldens them to face anew the challenge before them. And I can say that that has been very much my experience in reading in Christian apologetics old authors. Not only has my imagination been captured, but uh, a sense of uh, strength and of new uh, tools, new weapons. I hate to use a violent image in our postmodern context, but new weapons for the fight in that spiritual and metaphorical sense. Jesus doesn't hesitate to use the image of the sword in a number of contexts. Augustine offers us this kind of inspiration, tools that we can use to help win the day in our time. And so one of the tasks of apologetics is to foster a living correspondence between these texts, like the work of Lewis, like the work of Chesterton, like the work of Pascal, like the work of Augustine and others, so that we can draw on and learn from these past masters. Again, Chang puts it like this, and I quote, We preserve ancient strategies, swords, and songs. We repair them and compare them. We treasure them, not to inspect them with ever more minute attention, but to ready them for the day when they will be needed again. We need to be willing to restore and retell grand stories for our day. We must give the church stories compelling enough to captivate its challenges. Lose the epic, and you risk losing the epoch. I think that's a great statement. If we lose the epic, if we lose the great story, the great biblical account, 
the great the creation of our first parents, the fall of our forebears into sin, and God's plan in history of redemption. If we lose this grand story and we fail to tell it effectively and in a compelling way and fail to defend it, we will lose the epoch. We must win the epic. We must tell the better story, and our story is better because it's true. There's tremendous insight here, I think, for apologetics. Now, the city of God's rhetorical strategy is one of narratives in collision, and it recognizes that there are narratives in collision in the world, and this is exactly what we face today. We've always faced it. The church has always faced this foundational reality. The main objection that prompted the writing of the city of God was that Christianity had essentially caused the problems that were now stalking the Roman Empire, especially the fall of Rome, the Eternal City, as it was then called. The British Empire was once called the empire upon which the sun never sets, and uh, we're trying to blow away the clouds again in Canada right now. But anyway, especially this fall of the Eternal City, when these Gothic invaders led by Alaric had sacked and captured Rome, and there was a desire among the pagan elite, by the intellectual elite of the time, to blame Christianity. Now, this is a very common theme today, is it not? You identify the world's ills, ecological disaster, war, destruction of ancient cultures. It's all Christians' fault. It's all the church's fault. It's all presidents who name the name of Christ. It's all their fault. It is Christianity that is responsible for the evils of the world. Well, Augustine's friend Marcellinus appealed to Augustine to answer these charges. Now think about the situation for a moment. It's a hundred years since Constantine and his famous conversion. And there'd been years and years of persecution, as you know. And Christians had started to enjoy more freedom. Now, it's wrong to think that uh, with the conversion of, of, of Constantine, suddenly Christians were all the judges and they were the leading academics and intellectuals and they had never faced difficulties again. That's a pure nonsense. Constantine simply allowed and permitted then Christianity at, the be- at the, this early stage to be uh, recognized. It was later established, of course, as the uh, uh, religion of the state. Um, but initially, this was the context. And Christians had been in a situation where for several uh, uh, decades now, they had been enjoying more freedoms, more liberties, less persecution. They were deeply troubled, many of them, by the fall of Rome because they began to think that perhaps, and in fact some of the uh, early fathers, I think Ambrose was one of them, really thought that uh, the Roman Empire was going to be this fulfillment of some of the prophecies of Daniel. That this is, it was through the Roman Empire that the church was going to rule and reign. So they were shocked by the fall of Rome. But Augustine rises to the challenge about asking why God might have allowed this to happen just when signs were improving for the church. And 22 books and 15 years later, he's finished his response uh, the city of God. Augustine's life took place in a time of great change, a time of great transition in history, which we now identify as the transition from the ancient to the medieval era. And Curtis Chang helpfully defines these great shifts that threaten the, church is ju- the church's journey as epochal challenges. The times when there's a, a significant shift, a significant movement that represents this kind of scale of a challenge. It's a time when 
Christians feel like the, all the ground underneath them is moving and shifting and conflict seems to be facing them at every turn. These moments have sometimes been identified, of course, as paradigm shifts. And today there's a certain sense in which, and uh, you've noticed we haven't focused on lectures on post-modernity, which has been done to death. It's far better to understand post-modernity as ultra-modernity, in my view, anyway. But it represents something of this kind of continental drift. It's felt increasingly disorienting for the church over the last 40 or 50 years. Some of you are older here, lived in Canada for the last 50 years or 40 years, know all too well some of the remarkable shifts and changes that there have been, the last 100 years in particular. And it's this, these, this paradigm seeks to challenge previously held norms. This is what Chang writes. Thus, post-modernity conceived of religion as radically, radically relative, depict history as Nietzschean, Nietzschean record of the raw will to power and exercises a general hermeneutic of suspicion toward all literature. The fragmentation of Western culture splits Christianity's historical alliance with that culture while also giving rise to histories that implicate Christianity in a wide range of cultural ills, racial conflicts, ecological crisis, battles over sexuality and gender, escalating conflict between the church and the rest of society is a frequent symptom of the epochal challenge. It's been a long time since the church has really faced in the Western world the level of challenge we face today, perhaps 500 years. While the indirect rhetorical strategy of the city of God is overall to take every thought captive. And the first phase involves entering the challenger's story. The second part requires retelling and reinterpreting the challenger's story. And the third part involves capturing the retold story within the biblical narrative. Chang's first insight is first we need to enter the story. And this is a strategy now for apologetics in our time. And I think it's a useful one. Literally, he means that we, we enter the challenger's story. That is, we enter the challenger's worldview, to use a different language, in, on their own terms and in terms of their own authorities. In a certain sense, what we do is we, we make an effort with the non-believer to say, let me put on your lenses to look at the world. I'm going to put on your lenses to look at history and life and so on and so forth and try and get a meaningful understanding of where you're coming from. You see, so often Christians don't bother to find out Anything about the person they're really trying to speak to, to try and understand their worldview, to try and understand exactly where they're coming from. Well, what Augustine does, most remarkably, is to, in fact, in the first book of The City of God, is to bury himself completely in the pagan authorities to show that he can identify with and understands their story. In fact, the proverb says this, the book of Proverbs says, we must first answer the fool according to their folly. And actually, immediately afterwards, it says, don't answer the fool according to their folly. That's part two. That's a paradox there, but there's two important stages in Christian apologetics. And one of the the first one is to answer the fool. And by that, we're not calling people fools and idiots and so forth. We literally mean that the the fool has said in his heart, there is no God or there's no God of Scripture or I don't owe allegiance to this God. Answer them first according to their folly. We step into their story and show that we can do a a better job even of understanding it than they do. And this is what Augustine does with respect to paganism, quoting their authorities like Varro and so forth. He communicates as one who really indwells that story. And I think uh, 
one of the great benefits of having somebody like LT here talking about uh, Hinduism and Buddhism and so forth rather than somebody like myself trying to talk about it is that he's a person who's been able to indwell that in a very real sense. It's his cultural heritage. And so in that, uh, in that context, there's a sense of authenticity that comes through. Now, we must work really hard in our context of indwelling uh, that story so that we truly understand it. The story of pagan Rome that Augustine enters is one of this eternal city that saw itself as established by the gods. And despite the growth of Christianity and the establishment of Constantinople, the Eastern Empire around AD 330, pagan elites still monopolized the key centers of learning just as they do today. And Christianity was being blamed for the destruction of these beautiful pagan cults much like intellectuals today view missionaries as the destroyers of beautiful uh, indigenous uh, cultures and faiths. Augustine meets this misrepresentation very directly, and his first book, the, f- the first uh, uh, volume of these two volumes, um, is a tour de force, literally, of classical learning. He surveys the material, he explores it with great skill, and he highlights the points of tension, contradiction, failure, and absurdity. We haven't got time to talk about it for blaming uh, Christians for the fall of the Roman Empire. The main point being these gods were defeated gods long before they ever came to Rome and their demons, and he unmasks them brilliantly. The second stage after entering the story is retelling the the story, the, uh, the worldview with which we are wrestling and dealing, whether it be secular humanist or Hindu or Buddhist or whatever we're facing. From inside their story, their worldview, we then retell it from the position of one who has already gained a hearing at this point, because we're not speaking out of pure ignorance, and interpret it on the challenger's own terms. We seek to show that our account of their story, that is, what it implies, where it leads, what it means, where it comes from, and so on and so forth, is to a certain degree shown as the best interpretation of their own story. This is what I work on actually when I'm in uh, a public debate, even on the existence of God. I seek to show primarily where the denial of God actually leads. We rework their story so that we highlight its tragic flaws, its inherent weaknesses, its points of tension, those things that spell its own destruction. To put it in more traditional presuppositional terms, we do a narrative-based internal critique by showing its ultimate failure, the ultimate futility, the self-contradictory nature of the constructs of these non-Christian worldviews. And Augustine accomplishes this par excellence in uh, the city of God. He relentlessly unmasks the so-called glory of Rome as simply splendid vice, the love of domination, the greed for praise and glory. He really exposes it for what it is. He really unmasks it. He shows the inconsistencies, the half-truths, the selfish power games. He reveals that demons are behind their so-called gods. He reveals that the, the demonic is its tragic floor. As uh, Curtis Chang puts it, a weakness intrinsic to one's very nature that will inevitably lead to its downfall. In fact, uh, uh, Augustine argues that Rome was much like Sodom and Gomorrah. It was only improved by the presence of Christians. And actually, at the time, the judgment upon Rome was far less harsh because uh, some of the invaders 
were Christians. And because they were Christians, unlike what the Romans did and armies of that era, they did not slaughter everybody who were in the temples and uh, sepulchres and places of worship. Churches were refuges. And multitudes of pagans hid in the churches for refuge because the invaders did not kill people. They were made places of sanctuary. So actually, Augustine argues that if it wasn't for the Christians, you wouldn't even be here to make these uh, complaints. Because actually, it was the Christianity of, those, of some of those invading uh, Rome. And let's not forget, friends, that Rome was an incredibly barbarous empire. They had been dominating and butchering surrounding nations for a long time. So even though we c- call them the barbarians and so forth, that's just our um, cultural bias. The Germanic tribes and so forth actually were Europeans. Again, Chang notes, the central uh, dramatic action... Hang on a second, I've just jumped a page, forgive me. Yes, here we are. Another uh, illustration of what um, Augustine does is he offers a fascinating survey of philosophy in the empire, of Greek philosophy, and shows how, to a certain degree, as I mentioned uh, yesterday, uh, or was it Friday can't remember, Um, how Platonism um, had come much closer toward a Christian uh, understanding of God. And of course, there's actually a very good argument that some of the um, ancient philosophers, um, it was through their interaction with uh, Israelites in diaspora, in exile, uh, that that Platonism was able to uh, come to where it came to in terms of its conception of God. There is an argument to be made there that Augustine hints at, but... um, I haven't got time to talk about that now. Nonetheless, he says that uh, Platonism identifies the one, the true, the good, the eternal, the immutable, but they refuse to see the grace of God in Jesus Christ. They refuse to accept the incarnation of the word. And therefore, they are blind. And they turn away, he says, in their pride to worship many false deities. So he gets inside the pagan worldview. He meets them on their own ground. And then he retells, reinterprets their story as a story of human pride. And he uses their own sources to do so. The third and final stage is one of capturing the story. Augustine models how we can capture the retold story by captivating the mind and heart of the challenger with the biblical epic. And at that point, what we're doing is we're, answering, we're not answering the fool according to their folly. Having put on their lenses and said, look what your world looks like. Look where it leads. Look what it means. He says, Put on now the Christian lenses and look at the world. Consider the explanatory power of this story. Invite them into this story on our terms, calling them to look at the world through biblical lenses. And we retell the Christian account in a fashion designed to take in the reinterpretation of the non-Christian's fable. This stage involves inviting them to see a new view of reality captivating their hearts and minds with this epic that soars into eternity. So we've retold their story, and then we show how Christianity accounts for it. Chang puts it like this. Like sanded pegs falling into the holes of a massive woodwork, all the reworked aspects of the challenger's story, whether they are desires of its characters, the flow of its plot, or the direction of its dramatic action, now find their final and true place. In the gospel. A lot of people think that what we have to do in Christian apologetics is destroy everybody else's story. We don't. 
I think this was something that Lewis uh, talked about quite often. We don't have to destroy, we don't have to come from the posture of eliminating the subplot. Those subplots are there for a reason, and actually, in God's providence, they're there for an important reason. The apostle Paul in Athens says, I see that you're in many ways very religious. And in his apologetic, he says that God has appointed the boundaries of our habitation so that we might reach out for God and, and grope for him, even though he's not far from each one of us. So actually, these subplots are important as we reinterpret them in helping captivate the person, the non-believer who we're seeking to witness to. In the second volume, Augustine maps a Christian theology of history using this image found in the Psalms, two cities, two strands, birthed with the angels who went in two directions, the rebellious angels, the faithful angels, and he captures the challenger story as he weaves this epic. Augustine argues that the biblical story is a faithful record of historic fact, and his epic tells of a God who created and governs all facts, and by his revelation to men and women through signs and symbols appropriate to their time, critically unveils the holy ground of history with all its confusions. With all the false and vain philosophies, with all the counterfeit religions, that actually, even in times past, prepared men and women for the reception of the gospel so that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. LT and I were just talking yesterday about how important Genesis chapter 10 and the table of nations actually is for a whole variety of reasons. How God's interest in the non-Jewish people those seen as outside the covenant, that the very purpose of the calling of Abraham was that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. Augustine argues then that we unveil these two cities as we seek to expound the Christian view of reality. Two cities, two loves, two directions of thought. Two ultimate principles. He narrows them down to two. Again, Chang notes, and I quote, The central dramatic action of the city of God can be aptly labeled unveil. History itself is a series of unveiled, uh, of, sorry, of veiled illusions that require disclosure and interpretation. More centrally, the plot of the meta-narrative in volume two is driven by the act of unveiling the city of God and the city of men. And it concludes gloriously in the final and full interpretation of all history in its proper light when the just and the unjust will be made ultimately distinct and the separate roads go on uh, there into eternity when all the lack of clarity will be cleared up. Augustine's biblical framework of two cities, two peoples, two destinies, two loves, loves provides this narrative net which carries along and captures the pagan story, the non-Christian story, wherever it's found as it goes. The demonic nature of rebellion against God is revealed in the fall of Satan, the rebellion of our first parents, and the development of these two seeds in history as early as Cain and Abel. uh, We have that enigmatic prophecy in Genesis 3 verse 15, the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. And there begins this stream of prophecy which speaks about these two uh, attributes and attitudes towards God. Not biological seed, but a spiritual seed. 
He reveals the biblical story has this superior explanatory power by capturing all challenges and explaining the existence and meaning of the other stories themselves. And that's the important point. The Christian story doesn't just tell its own story and exclude all others. It explains and accounts for the existence of all these other stories. It's able to capture them. It's able to explain why they're there and the role that they play. Again, Chang writes, establishing a story's superior explanation, explanatory power is crucial to determining whether it can capture all other challenges. A meta-narrative must not only explain an external reality better than other stories, it must also explain the other stories themselves. And that's what the Christian account of reality does. In other words, we have a contest in storytelling. That's the contest. Now, that doesn't mean we're dealing with fables here. It's not just like, well, are you sitting comfortably? Can I tell it better than you? It's the explanatory power of our story. Can it capture these other stories? It's a contest in storytelling. Is the Islamic story more powerful and compelling than ours, or does the Christian story actually account for the Islamic story? Same is true of the Hindu question, the Buddhist question, the Teo question, the the Confucian question, secular humanist question. It's interesting that Jesus often dealt with the Pharisees in terms of stories that exposed the real nature of Israel's history and so reinterpreted their opposition to him. This is something that struck me as I was considering this. For example, the parable of the wicked tenants depicts the Pharisees who saw themselves as the purest most enlightened representatives of the righteousness of Israel. And Jesus reinterprets the history of Israel as they had understood it in this parable, as wicked servants who would not give to God his due, who beat and killed all God's messengers, eventually even the masters, the messengers uh, killed his own son. And so Jesus says, what will the master do to those people? The Pharisees were in no doubt whatsoever about the meaning of Jesus' story and his reinterpretation of the history of Israel. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. There was an early face-off, you see, between Christianity and Judaism, which was a contest in storytelling. Which interpretation of Jewish history was going to be seen as correct, as true? Was it Jesus' interpretation of this rebellious nation, that didn't recognize the time of God's visitation, a nation that was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, a courier of the promises, or was it the Pharisees' interpretation that Israel was a nation chosen and superior to all others by bloodline that would throw off the pagan oppressor because God was on the side of geopolitical Israel? That was their interpretation. But Paul says no. Jesus says, no, Paul says, no, it wasn't to seeds as unto many, but unto your seed, which is Christ, he says. So he reinterprets the whole story of the nation of Israel, not as the many, as the material, physical offspring of Abraham who are inheriting the promises, but the seed, which is Christ. And so Paul says, we are sons of Abraham if we're children of faith. That is a radical reinterpretation of the story. I find that interesting. 
The New Testament retells the story of the seed of Abraham then, the spiritual seed of faith. Which story wins? Well, the church won the epoch because it won the epic. And Jerusalem, as Jesus prophesied, was destroyed and the temple had not a single stone left on another. Did you know that when Titus surrounded Jerusalem at the siege of Jerusalem, the commanders plowed up the very foundation stones of the temple? The Christian narrative, the Christian interpretation was seen to be true. Postmodernity, despite its proponents' protestations to the contrary, has its own meta-narrative, has its own story that seeks to trump all previous stories, interpreting all these others as the naked will to power disguised, disguising itself as a rational claim to universal truth. Yet the essential implication of postmodernity is that ultimately no story can legitimately evaluate the truth of another. Since grand-scale narratives or worldviews are being culturally conditioned and since truth is ultimately subjective, claims to overarching meaning of an absolute or objective character merely hide. They claim motives of violence, power, control. All such claims are thus to be viewed with suspicion and rejected. Instead, there's to be an infinite openness to the other and resistance to assign the definitive meaning to language, literature, life, etc. In other words, there's only one right way to encounter and understand human life. That's their claim. It still has an absolute intent. So we see that this constitutes one of the points of tension with postmodernity today and its narrative thought that claims to reject the notion of coercion, but they can't have it both ways. Either theirs is a culturally conditioned story that has no evaluative ability, cannot evaluate any other story, and therefore cannot speak to the issues of Christianity and cannot capture any other story, or it is, in fact a grand story that seeks to reinterpret all others as the naked will to power. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.